Welcome to the Everyday Innovator podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products customers love. In 2012, I read a very important book to me. It was titled Startup Owner's Manual, the step-by-step guide for building a great company. It's a book that spoke to me. It tied together many of my experiences and helped me put them into a framework, thinking about what's really important. It shared the need to get out of the office and learn from actual customers, which was something that I had found vital in my own experience, but I didn't always practice it on projects, and it bit me when I did it. Finding this book also made me aware of Steve Blank, its author. Later, like many of us, I learned about lean startup thinking from Eric Ries and found similar thinking that was in the Startup Owner's Manual. And it made sense to me when I then read that Steve Blank shared that Eric Ries is his best student. Consequently, I think of Eric as the creator of Lean Startup, while Steve Blank is its father. And Steve is someone I've wanted to discuss innovation with for a long time, and this interview fulfills that dream. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And if you want to get your hands on the written summary of everything we discuss, you'll find that along with an action guide. The action guide is something new we're doing to help you take immediate action on the concepts and maybe even have some discussion with other colleagues about the concepts. You'll find all that at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 290. Now, let's talk with Steve. Steve, thank you so much for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time in coming with me wanting to talk to you for many years, ever since I picked up the uh, your 2012 book, The Startup Owner's Manual, holding it in my hand here. And we'll talk about that. First, I, I love kind of getting the thread through a person's life. And you have this rich history, you know, going from early career Air Force into being a product marketing manager, something that a lot of listeners are in uh, that role, or more specifically, maybe a product manager. And then on to VP of marketing in different uh, organizations, and then founder, co-founder, uh, largely all through technology industry. And now you're very much an educator, you know, right? You spend your time helping entrepreneurs, startups, government organizations, established companies, all of us figure out how to do a better job with innovation, trying to be innovators. I'm curious, as you reflect back on that, just if you see a thread through that that led you to now being this educator. Yeah, they, actually, uh, there was a thread, and, and part of it I, I uh, actually identified early on in in the Air Force in the middle of a war zone uh, when I was, I guess, eighteen. But and that was I was pretty good at assimilating a large amount of data rapidly, more rapidly than than people around me. And the second component of that is I was also really good at pattern recognition. Is that mm. once you took in all that data, being able to ex- extract patterns that other people didn't see immediately. And, uh, you know, given all the other deficits I had and, and still have, you know, it was nice to, to have those two skills. And, and I didn't quite know how to articulate them at the time, mm-hmm. nor did I know what to do with them. But it turns out those are actually pretty good skill sets to have as, uh, as a startup founder or in, in a startup. It's also pretty good skill sets as an educator when you're trying to understand new patterns and, and new research. And that coupled with something else, um, which a lot of people have, is uh, just an immense sense of curiosity about everything. 
And so it didn't matter what the field was. I was just interested in it. Everything, you know, from particle physics to electronic warfare to, you know, I don't know, Renaissance art, etc. And then probably somewhat of a New Yorker and guy thing is, you know, I thought it didn't matter what the qualification said in a job, I was going to apply. And, and so just a, a threat through my life was uh, I showed up a lot more than showed up more than, than uh, most people. And, and I tended to, you know, just be fearless of, of, of what to do. Being, being in the military early, I think, gave me an unfair advantage in understanding the risks of a startup. Hmm. And I'll just finish the, the long answer to your short question is when I got to Silicon Valley, I remember one of my early roommates saying, gee, you're, you're doing these startups. Isn't that risky? And I had come out of a, you know, a place where I wasn't the tip of the spear, but other people were. And some of them didn't come back from what they were doing and mm-hmm. uh, where failure uh, had, had a much more immediate consequence than losing your job. And I have to tell you, that has always stuck with me as well, is that it's very hard to die as an entrepreneur. Um, right. So, so I, I don't know if that gave you a, an answer to the question, but... Um, yeah, absolutely. But that, that's a great unfair advantage. My first job out of school was with a small system integration company where we created uh, systems for government organizations. And it was sobering to realize that some of our systems were being used for life and death decision making, right? It, it, it makes you frame things differently. The yes. pattern recognition is also quite important. Um, being able to observe patterns and simplify actions then because of that, that that's a great skill to have. So I was just curious about that thread. I, I love seeing how people's experience kind of leads to what they're doing today. And thanks for sharing your reflections on that a little bit. Let's talk about your book. So this book that, you, that came out in 2012, the subtitle is The Step-by-Step Guide for Building a Great Company that I so much enjoyed when uh, it was published, got my hands on it. The title is rather descriptive, but I would like to hear in your, your words, you know, the, the main purpose for that book. Well, I'm gonna, this one, I guarantee I'm going to give you a long answer till you smack me on the side <laughs> of the head. Um, so, you know, we should continue on the theme of pattern recognition because I had been an entrepreneur for 21 years and various roles from just showing up to all the way to CEO of a, a, a company. And uh, after those eight startups, I got lucky enough to retire in the last uh, internet bubble before the crash and had time to reflect on my life as an entrepreneur. And my kids were young and I decided what the world really needed were my memoirs. <laughs> so I started writing stories about each one of my startups and the lessons I had learned out of each one of them. And I still remember I was on page 80 out skiing in Tahoe, or at least my kids and wife were, and I was sitting in the ski cabin typing. And I got to page 80 and the hair started to stand up in the back of my neck when I realized I was describing in each one of those stories a set of patterns that I had never heard before. And by then... I was not only a serial entrepreneur, but I was sitting on lots of boards, public and private companies, and had been seeing the same thing. And the pattern simply was, is that in the 20th century, it's hard to believe, but investors essentially told startups they were smaller versions of large companies. That is, you know, large companies write business plans. We want you to do that. More importantly, large companies write five-year you know, forecasts and, and execute to that plan. That's exactly what we want you to do. We essentially want you to predict the future and simply execute to a piece of paper that you came up with some ideas. You know, 
there, there was no notion of getting out and talking to anybody or no notion of, of testing early prototype, nothing. And by the way, large companies hire sales, marketing, biz dev, and start spending like, excuse me, startups hire those people just like large companies and start spending on them, on marketing programs, et cetera, on day one, and scaling sales forces before you launch the product. And, and as I was reflecting on, on all the things around me, the pattern was that's not how the successful startups made it. Almost every one of them ignored that advice, either consciously or painfully by like trying it and then, you know, like having to change their strategy. And so I wrote my first book before the Startup Owner's Manual, the book that kicked off the lean startup movement was called The Four Steps of the Epiphany. And it basically articulated one of the three components of what has become the lean startup. it, It basically articulated the customer development methodology, which said, at its core, uh, two things. One is there are no facts inside your building, so you need to get the heck outside. And two is maybe even more importantly, for the first time ever articulated that while large companies execute business models, startups startups actually search for business models. And the, the tools we use for execution were completely not only irrelevant, but destructive if, if startups were using them. Startups needed their own tools for searching for business models. And I proposed, here's one. And, and I am going to answer your question about the Startup Owner's Manual. And what happened in, you know, in succession was um, you know, one of my investments and then my student, Eric Reese, became the first adopter of customer development. But his addition was... Uh, Understanding that, look, Steve, in the 20th century, people developed products with what was called waterfall engineering, that is building products in a serialized fashion. You step, you have a functional spec, you hand it to engineering, they, they go off to you know, build the product, then alpha test, beta test, first customer ship, and you really didn't get sufficient customer feedback until after you shipped the product. And he pointed out is that in the 21st century, people were starting to adopt agile engineering. That is where you built the products incrementally and iteratively. And the combination of agile and customer development was actually a match made in heaven. Mm-hmm. And so, so then Lean became customer development and Eric's observation about agile. And then three, four years later, Alexander Osterwalder came out with a book called Business Model Generation, which popularized this notion of the business model canvas, which basically said you could describe the key things a founder needs to know in nine boxes on a single piece of paper instead of writing a 45-page plan. You know, who are the customers? What are you building for them called the value proposition? How do you get, keep, and grow them called customer relationships? You know, what's the distribution channel? What's your revenue strategy? Uh, What are the resources and activities you need to, to pull this off, partners and costs? Well, once you, and Osterwalder originally intended that canvas to be for large companies to design strategy for their next moves. But I realized it was actually the perfect diagram to use to articulate all the hypotheses you need to test all the way back to my customer development process. And so those three components, business model design, customer development, and agile engineering became the lean startup. And between... 2000 or 2001, when I first wrote the four, four Steps of the Epiphany and the Startup Owner's Manual in 2012, at least the startup world rapidly adopted lean methodologies. 
Uh-huh. But there really was no handbook for how to do it, no encyclopedia of a step-by-step guide. And so, because the, believe it or not, the, the Stephanie was literally the opening salvo in a new stack of literature about what I'd call the era of modern entrepreneurship, focused around lean rather than focused around writing business plans. Um, and the Startup Owner's Manual was kind of a way to concatenate all that information and hand it to a founder who was asking, okay, I get this lean stuff. It sounds great. What do I actually do? Thanks for the theory, but, but show me the practice. Uh-huh. And so it's, not, a, it's not, not designed to be read as a novel. It's designed to be read as kind of you are here or where are you in, in your step and what, you, what should you be doing now? What was your question? <laughs> so I wanted you to expand on the subtitle, tell us just the purpose of this book, uh, which I think you delivered on quite well there. So, and the connections that you made there with Eric's Reese and Alex's uh, work is quite good too. The I often, when this comes up in topics, I often talk about that Eric is your your best student in terms of learning these ideas, and that you're the, the really the father of much of the ideas about how do we put lean uh, into practice. You have no idea how much I'm enjoying this conversation with Steve, and we will get back to it in just a moment. He's sharing some great insights that are very practical for us as product managers. And I've noticed as product management leaders, they're starting to make an investment in their product managers, mentoring them. They've always been doing that, but really helping them become more knowledgeable and productive and higher performing. And the big change I'm seeing is getting product managers working together better as they work in, on their individual products in, in their business units. Now, some of these leaders are choosing to work with me to get that higher performance. They're using a system I created called the RPM Experience, the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. Not only are their product managers getting on the same page with each other, they're learning a holistic framework for improved product management, and they're also collaborating with each other like they never have before. It's an experience that takes place over web conferencing, making it ideal for geographically dispersed teams and everyone remote working. It's also fun and engaging. Participants often share that they've never been part of such a different and enriching experience as the RPM experience is. I have a couple spots left for groups starting in August. Would love to help your product managers get on the same page together, learn to collaborate more, learn to have a better customer focus, something that Steve is certainly talking with us about now. You can find all the details and be able to schedule time with me to talk if this is the right approach for your group at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. Now, I'm eager to get back to Dr. Steve. Let's do that. Let's make sure we give credit where it's due. I'm, you know, Eric became not only just the, the, the person who observed about Agile, but he's been the Johnny Appleseed of the lean movement. Mm-hmm. He has conferences. He has some very astute things to say. You know, uh, without the business model canvas, um, you know, I think lean would be missing. A, and, and in fact, when I was teaching it before, before Alex came out with the canvas, we were struggling on how to describe what it, what he so eloquently did in, in his book and his follow-on books, which are, I suggest, you know, everybody's library should kind of include a minimum of, uh, you know, the lean startup from Eric and uh, every one of the four to date uh, Osterwalder books and, mm-hmm. and my two books and the neat thing, by the way, as an aside, is it's hard to believe if you're an entrepreneur born in the 21st century, but but at the turn of the century, there were about zero books on building lean startups, zero. 
there must be hundreds, if not thousands now of titles. I, I'd be surprised if there weren't with the word lean and, and right. you know, and, and it's just, I can't tell you how mind blowing that is. Um, because if you're an entrepreneur today, you take for granted a couple of things. You take for granted that entrepreneurship is everywhere. You take for granted that all you have to do is type into the web and and your biggest problem about learning about innovation and entrepreneurship and how to build startups is how to adjudicate between all of that flood of information you're getting. None of that existed in the 20th century. There was no methodology. Uh, and, and in fact, if you were an entrepreneur, there was no money in your city or town, at least for a seed fund or a seed round. You had to go to an innovation cluster. And the notion of innovation and entrepreneurship and startups were kind of just crazy ideas rather than kind of part of the mainstream. And so while we still use the word investors and entrepreneurs and startups as we use them in the 20th century, their meaning has changed dramatically and, and for the better. It's all very good. good. Good information for us about the value of this book and just the concepts that we need to be putting into action. I have an aside for you, which is just a personal curiosity. So the, the cover of the book from 2012, the, uh, this looks like an old combustion engine. I'm just curious about why, why that cover. Well, for me, actually, my career in the, in the military, if you must know the secret, was kind of uh, assembling and disassembling fairly complex devices, mostly electronic, but some of them had usually complicated uh, mechanical movements. And, and the, the Air Force technical manuals were spectacular. And they had diagrams just like that to mm -hmm. break down very complex activities since, you know, what were called exploded diagrams. Right. And, and so I always loved the ability to kind of break down complicated ideas. In this case, you know, how do you build this, this thing called a startup? And how do you kind of explode it out into simplified assembly instructions? And so the startup owner's manual really is, you know, the simplified assembly instructions for a startup. You know, the, the classic is, is uh, tearing apart, if you've ever owned a car and did maintenance. And, you know, when I was, when I was a teenager, one of the biggest things you had to do is not, first you started on your carburetor but then you if you really wanted a challenge you tore apart your transmission and I remember the time I did that trying to follow, follow an exploded diagram and and put it back together and realized there was an extra piece <laughs> you know that's kind of like building a startup so the manual actually and the cover was trying to illustrate that point is um, there are a lot of moving parts but we could help you take it apart and put it together I love that. When I was about 11 or 12, my father gave me a combustion engine to amuse myself with and took it all apart and put it back together. I think there were like three screws left over, three bolts. And it's like, it still worked. I don't know where they went. <laughs> right. so. My, my five-speed trans, uh, transmission only had four speeds when I was done. Yep. But it worked. It worked. <laughs> and you learned a lot in the process. And that's a lot of what this is about is learning as you're famous for getting out of the building, right? Learn, learn information that we need to satisfy customers. Okay. So 2012, the book has been republished by Wiley now, showing good lasting, timeless value there. What has evolved in your thinking over those years, you know, from the Four Steps of Epiphany, now the Startup Owners Manual? And as if you worked with all these organizations, have you seen the startup environment change? And has any of your actual thinking evolved in approaching that? Yeah, well, so have I seen the startup uh, 
environment change huge uh, changes. You know, the the lean startup and certainly customer development came out of the rubble of the dot-com crash at the turn of the century. That is, uh, during the dot-com bubble that preceded it, you know, cash was not only free, it was being thrown at you, kind of like what the world was like uh, until March uh, 2020. For most startups then, the problem wasn't funding, the problem was scale. Uh-huh. And, and there was a mantra which you didn't, which people haven't heard for 20 years called first mover advantage, which investors were giving startups money with a theory that says if you were first to market, um, you could freeze out all competitors if you just spend, spend, spend. It turns out that was a bad theory because in most markets are so large, you can't buy ownership. There are a few that you can, but most you couldn't. But in any case, when the crash happened, all of a sudden investors became, at least the, the ones that survived, became risk averse and were looking for evidence that you had in hindsight. And now it's a term uh, that, that we use, but they were looking for something back then, which we now call product market fit. And they wanted to see it uh, before they would even give you a check. This is in the era about 2000, late 2001, all the way to maybe 2003 or four. It was a it was nuclear winter. It was, in fact, a mass extinction event of both startups and um, and investors. And so I'm telling you the story just for context that the lean methodology emerged to provide founders and investors a way to build startups without wasting lots of time, money, resources, people, etc. That is, if you iterated and built your products incrementally, that is building minimum viable products, uh, and you changed when you got data that said, hey, these are the wrong customers or these are the wrong features doing something, uh, which Eric renamed, called a pivot, all of a sudden uh, you could save enormous amounts of cash rather than just blindly launching products, getting it wrong. Oh, we have more cash. Now we could you know, just change our product. You could move all those failures from expensive failures later on to just incremental changes, much cheaper, much faster, much earlier. Uh, and so lean emerged from the rubble of a crisis. I think, I think we're going to have the same effect in 2020. You know, the days of blitzscaling are over of having infinite cash to kind of grow markets. We're going to not only use lean again in, in, in all its glory, but we're also going to be probably developing new methodologies that build on top of that to take advantage of the changed environment. Did I answer part of your question or all of it? Or? Uh, absolutely. So I'm sure some things have stayed this similar too, but big shifts in what you saw early on. And there has been, you know, I, I remember the events leading up to the dot bomb, right? 1999 kind of time frame. And I was at a startup at the time and the mantra was you take the cash and spend it as fast as you can, right? Scale, scale was the issue. What, you you spent really, it on advertising. And you spent it in a direction that you didn't really know if that was going to be viable or not. Right. And now, as things of economy has, has come back before this time, you run into leaders of companies that at times, you know, just want to get products into the market and see what works and losing track a little bit of these lean concepts, which are so important to validate and, and uh, do the incremental learning along the way to know what works before we build. So, yes, very good. 
the I, this is all focused on startups so far, but I run into companies often that say they want to act more like a startup, and I'm sure that you, you are helping other organizations. How do these concepts apply to larger or incumbent organizations, established organizations? You know, that's a great question, you know, and it's probably worth going all the way back to why do big companies care? That is, why would they want to look at startups for any tools and techniques? And I just want to observe for people in startups who aren't in large companies or haven't been in a while, you know, the last decade has been pretty tough on established corporations. Uh, the word disruption is now appearing quite a bit in, in conversations about large corporations, which simply means is that large companies are, are finding the environment around them completely different in the 21st century, certainly the second decade, than it was in the 20th century. And, and the reason why is not that CEOs have gotten dumber, though they have gotten greedier. It, it, it's that the everything around them has changed. In fact, the the line I use uh, that says, you know, almost everything you learned in business school and if you've gotten your MBA 10 years ago is obsolete. Not the accounting classes and not the whatever classes, but how to deal with disruption was typically not part of your curriculum. How to build and, and constantly change your business model to deal with changing environments was not part of the model of what you learned. And as a CEO, you're you were learning about execution and growth and organizational strategy and, you know, talent management, et cetera. You know, if you were a retailer in the last five or 10 years, you know, that sword over your head was Amazon. If you were in entertainment, you know, there were new distribution channels like the web and, and, and subscription services, et cetera. Almost every business was dealing with changes at speed that they just never had to encounter. I mean, I'll give you another one, which just blows my mind is in the, when I was an entrepreneur, the idea of a startup having more capital than a large corporation was laughable. But today, or at least up till March 2020, startups in some cases were raising hundreds of millions or maybe even billions of dollars. Um, and having not only having more capital, uh, having the freedom of not having to record profits until they achieve some form of liquidity. So companies were faced with all these challenges, China as a as a both a customer and as a competitor, startups with infinite capital, distribution channels changing, brands not being as valuable as they were. I mean, now you could create a brand within a year. So, so to, that's the preamble to why were large companies starting to look at startups' tools while they were trying to deal with high speed changes, disruptions in their business model. And so in 2013, in the May 2013 cover of the Harvard Business Review, they published an article of mine called Why the Lean Startup Changes Everything. And it gave, for the first time, corporate CEOs a aha that there's a tool set that startups were using that perhaps they could take and, and put in their companies. And so for the last five, maybe now seven years, large corporations have been using startup tools. And, and I have to point out, this isn't the first time, you know, people have thought about this. In the 20th century, you know, two professors, uh, Tushman and, and, and O'Reilly, one at Stanford and one, and I believe, at MIT, came up with this notion of the ambidextrous organization, which said that companies should be able to chew gum and walk at the same time, that is, deal with execution and deal with innovation simultaneously. But, but the reason why it wasn't a huge 
a huge tidal wave of change, I believe, is in the 20th century, this was optional, meaning, yeah, okay, that's nice to know, that's great, but, you know, I'm competing with peers who kind of move at my same speed, and that's fine, that's a nice theory. In the 21st century, being ambidextrous, if you're a large company, is not optional. And right. so, therefore, they started looking at, at startup tools. Okay. That gets you to the, to the answer to the first part of the, or at least the question you asked. The question you didn't ask is, how are they doing? <laughs> and, and I believe, I'm actually feeling pretty guilty, is um, what they actually ended up adopting was not innovation, but they ended up with innovation theater, at least most corporations. And by innovation theater, I mean, they kind of copied the, the patterns, but, but they really didn't get the outcomes that they desired. That is, some corporations have been doing internal incubators for three, four years, and somebody finally looks around and says, great, you know, great programs. We have coffee cups with, with innovation on it. Our, our cafeterias have, like, you know, go startups internally, and we have lanyards and posters. But how, how are we impacting revenue or, or profit? And someone will change the subject. Oh, look at our coffee cups. <laughs> Meaning that it really didn't make a dent. And it didn't make a dent in most companies because we never really solved the hard, hard problems. We were focused on demos, not delivery. You know, we were focused on theater, not actually the tough stuff is how do you integrate an innovation pipeline in, into the rest of the P&Ls? How do you change the culture of HR and finance and legal and security and all the other organizational components that are focused on process, procedure, KPIs, necessarily for execution for the 99.9% of the employees who are working on a repeatable and scalable model. How do you integrate <coughs> disruptive folks um, who are building a funnel of things that mostly will fail? And by the way, how do you integrate failure uh, into a culture where in an execution culture, Failure should be unacceptable because it's a repeatable pattern. But in an innovation culture, failure is just learning and discovery. It, it's in fact a, if you're not failing, you're not doing innovation. Does that make sense? Did I answer questions? Uh, you're leading to one that now that is very important, which is how indeed do you do that inside the established company? How do you integrate this notion of we want to do experiments, we recognize a good part of those going to fail. At the same time, you have the organization wired for execution excellence. Yeah, I've uh, I've now seen this movie in in both government agencies. You know, Department of Defense is the largest company in the world. There are two million people work for them, uh, all the way down to you know much smaller companies. It really starts, and 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 I just want to point out every company and government agency has at their bottom, uh, and and not physically on the bottom, but just like has at at their core. I don't care the size of that company or agency. There are some great, passionate innovators uh, who are smarter, smarter than anyone in startups, but they're frustrated. They've been beating their heads against the wall. And so there are guerrilla activities trying to, to make stuff happen in every large corporation. In fact, I'm, I'm going to answer your question with a little story. Every organization, large company, government agency I've worked with, have these stories about innovation heroics. And by innovation heroics, you know, every company celebrates the story of some entrepreneur who fights the internal company system and makes something happen and gets a product out against all odds. And, and if they're a 
progressive company. They might even have annual awards for the somebody who made something happen against all odds. I find that a pattern that's unbelievable that we celebrate that because what we're actually celebrating is, hey, here's the award of how screwed up our company is not to have a process for innovation, but actually has a process for how we fought a system that wasn't designed to capture innovation. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so, so, so to answer your question, so what's really missing is we need what I call uh, innovation doctrine. That is, what are the heuristics and rules that allow innovation to thrive, either internal to the company or if we decide our culture doesn't support it internally as an external acquisition engine or partnering engine or something that allows us to rapidly adopt our business model to change. And that cannot be done by individual heroics. That needs to start at minimum at the sea level and most usually doesn't really happen unless the board gets it. And the problem is, is that in large corporations, the board is usually staffed by executors, whether they're financial executors, that, that's a, gee, that's nice, but you know, we got activist investors we got to worry about, or we need to worry about the stock price, or we need to worry about X in the next quarter. Then you tend to focus the company around relentless execution, which is a great short-term activity, but guarantees that in most markets, you're going to have a five-year or at most 10-year trajectory, which might be fine for, again, people who are optimizing their paychecks or their dividends on short-term strategies. But it doesn't guarantee long-term success. Right. More importantly, for government agencies who need to have long-term success, that is, we want the country to still be in business in another 30, 40 some odd years, because some of these programs take that long, we need to have a different mindset than just executing existing programs. And we need to have a different mindset that says, oh, we're risk averse. You know, we'll lose our job if we take a risk. Not understanding that, no, the core processes of the company need to continue to be risk averse, but you need a parallel set of procedures. And this is the big idea about an innovation doctrine coming from top down. Uh-huh. You need a parallel process to do that. And an innovation doctrine has four pieces. It has uh, context. So what's going on around us? Are we in an industry that is being disrupted or going to be disruptive? Are the technology changes, channel changes, consumer changes, manufacturing changes, competitive changes? What's the world look like? And do we all agree on the state of the world? Because sometimes the, you know, the executors have their heads down and maybe the board is going, holy cow, we're about... And by the way, for context, what's the board care about? Whether it's the board of directors in a commercial company or government or something, do they care about only short-term gains? Then like innovators ought to quit and leave. Or do we want to have a sustainable company? The next part is the role of leadership. And this is sometimes the toughest thing is that, you know, you know who mostly kills, in fact, I'm going to tell you a great story. You, the, the person who mostly kills innovation inside a large corporation is not the CEO. It's uh, often the VP of sales. Huh. And the story that blew my mind about this, which illustrates the problem, is in the beginning of Silicon Valley, one of the leading semiconductor chip companies was called Fairchild. And Fairchild was started out by making silicon transistors and and they couldn't make them fast enough. 
their VP of sales and their sales organization was essentially order takers. They showed up with that device and people grabbed it out of their hands. But back in the research labs, Gordon Moore and uh, Robert Noyce invented something called the integrated circuit, which allowed you to pack hundreds of transistors at the time on, on a single chip and completely would change how you would design computers. You know what the VP of sales said? Any idea? People are buying transistors. Yeah, worse. said, over my dead body. <laughs> yeah. and, and by the way, from his point of view, he was exactly right. And it's not obvious why. It turned out people were grabbing those transistors out of his hand. But, but even though the integrated circuit was a major leap, no one knew what to do with it. So instead of just grabbing out of your hands, you had to sit with customers hmm. and have additional people like field engineers and whatever staff you never had before to help them actually design the, the product in. So now sales productivity was going to hit the ground. More importantly, commissions were going to hit the ground. Uh-huh. So from the point of view of the VP of sales, we don't want integrated circuits. And in fact, Fairchild was a laggard, even though they invented it. And that story repeats itself all the time. And this is where I go back to leadership, is that the CEO needs to understand that innovation is almost fought continually by the existing divisions and P&Ls, because it will eat, if you're successful, into your most profitable products. But if you don't put yourself out of business, your competitors are going to do this. You will have no lock nowadays on channel or technology. It's rare. You might, but almost always someone else will do it. And so the comp plans and and processes sometimes get in our own way of success. And that means uh, you actually have to change also comp plans. So I kind of, the first thing I do as a diagnostic for leadership is really you're building an innovation process. Great. Tell me whose comp just changed, compensation. Well, no one. Well, you know what? You're still going to incent whatever execution behaviors you want. Which HR rules are you going to change? Uh-huh. I remember when we started a, an innovation program at uh, General Electric early on, they were building an innovation team to build uh, um, high-temperature sulfur batteries, and it was inside, believe it or not, the locomotive division, and they were staffing, trying to staff up the new team. And, of course, HR said, oh, that's great, but you can only take the most senior people. <laughs> it's like that, those, are the, those are the last people you wanted in an internal innovation group. Some of them might have been senior, but you really wanted to take the crazy people who want to take risk. Mm-hmm. And so it took literally going up to back then ML to change the HR policy. But in fact, part of an innovation doctrine understands all these things on day one and has a checklist of all the things that leadership needs to take ownership for if we're going to have innovation processes. And if you decide, gee, we're not great at doing it inside, we've got to do it outside. Well, your M&A group and your strategy group and whatever typically work in silos. Well, that needs to end. And, oh, that's a turf issue. Those things need to be solved. Right. The third part is you need to have an internal innovation process that's more than innovation theater. That is, yeah, great, you have a corporate accelerator, but what's the innovation pipeline from sourcing problems, prioritizing them, curating them, running them through a incubator. But more importantly is how do we actually scale them and integrate them into either an existing P&L or an existing division or spinning them out? Or But how do we get products and services delivered? Oh, we haven't figured that out yet. Well, then you really don't have innovation. You have theater. And then finally, the last part is what are all the resources? We need to support this. And 
And specifically, what are all the, what I call the appendix A's to the HR policies and the finance policies and the legal policies? You know, the manual, HR manual should be this thick for 99% of the company, but what's the policy for the, the innovation pipeline? For finance, yeah, you need 15 signatures to spend 10,000 bucks. But if I'm in an innovation pipeline, I should be able to get on a plane or go to a conference without anybody's approval because, gee, I'm acting like a startup inside my company. So those levels of, of, uh, of formalizing internal innovation in a large corporation will do what the lean startup did for early stage companies will actually do for large corporations. Because at the end of the day, one of the big observations about startups that kicked off lean is startups weren't smaller versions of large companies. But over the last decade, we've now realized that large companies are not bigger versions of startups. And, And having that deep understanding of what that means is that you just can't simply take those processes throw them in a startup and end up with anything other than theater. And so that's the need for an innovation doctrine. And Pete Newell and I of a company called BMMT are going to write a book on, on this uh, as soon as we come up for air when the, when the virus is over. Excellent. I had the opportunity to talk to Pete Neal uh, recently, and we got to explore that a little bit more. So I'll put a link to the that in the show notes as well. What's the timeline for coming up for air and being able to work on that? Because I'm sure people would like to get their hands on more details about this innovation doctrine. Well, you know, it'll be done as as soon as we're finished. <laughs> Very <laughs> so, good. <laughs> um, you know, and right now we're at Stanford. We're struggling with the, not struggling, but the transitioning oral classes online. Right. By the time this podcast appears, uh, we'll be starting a summer session of a new set of classes uh, called Hacking the Pandemic, which are a series of five-day pop-up classes on not only just medical issues, but new issues about recovering in the economy of, you know, how are jobs going to be reconfigured? What are new businesses? How to search for them, et cetera. And so by the time you're listening to this, uh, uh, hopefully those are going to be available and to people to kind of look at um, and, and participate in. So so our time is kind of being taken up in, in, in some of these other areas. Well, yeah, that sounds like a very important thing to do as well. I, I'm quite confident we will innovate ourselves uh, to a better place. And those pop-up courses will be helpful for doing that as well. As listeners know, I love innovation quotes. I asked for you to share one with us and tell us why you chose that one. Well, I I think it's one I already mentioned, which is, you know, there are no facts inside the buildings, so get the heck outside. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it's corollary is, you know, while, while you might be the smartest person in the building, there's no possible way you're smarter than the collective intelligence of potential customers. And, and that was the beginning of, of, excuse the pun, the epiphany about why entrepreneurs needed to build organizations different than they did in the 20th century. It, it truly is that the smarter you are, the harder it is for you to understand that the trap that most very smart founders fall into is uh, thinking that implicitly thinking you understand the customer problem or needs. And therefore, how hard is this? Let's just go build it. Well, it turns out that is the trap. Um, Most founders who think they're visionaries, we now have 75 years worth of data, are actually hallucinating because they don't have sufficient data. And so the whole idea is to point out to people that 
you could build an evidence-based startup with very little resources. And then the only barriers to do that is your implicit belief that you are already in possession of all the facts. Right. Yeah. Just this notion alone, right? You're, you're often quoted for some phrasing of this, right? Get out of the cubicle, get out of the office, get, you know, experience the real world. It's great just to see how that has played out in places, even like a weekend hackathon, where people are going to the mall and doing literally 100 interviews you know, yep. on a Saturday and then building the solution on a Sunday and winning the hackathon because they got that customer experience. It's it's an incredibly powerful technique, yep. and and, uh, and it's surprising. There's no technology involved. The only barrier is uh, your own head and an implicit hubris that says, "Well, I know better." Yeah, or or sometimes we run into I'm uncomfortable talking to customers. It's like, well, well, be, well curi- it, be curious. Go talk to them. <laughs> you know, my class was adopted at at Stanford, my Stanford class was adopted by the National Science Foundation in, in a program called the uh, I Corps Innovation Corps. It's now taught in 98 universities, uh, and we taught. Uh, still teach principal investigators on, on how to use this methodology. Mm-hmm. Uh, principal investigators are almost always faculty inside of universities, but they're all technical, at least in the NSF class. And part of the class is recognizing that, you know, the difference between an introvert and an extrovert for most of them is whether they're staring at their shoes or my shoes. <laughs> but within 10 weeks, they all figure out how to make eye contact because that's part of the class. Mm-hmm. And, and so, Even if you don't have that as a natural skill, you could develop it by just emulating what are some best practices to do that. And you literally give people, ask them, you know, ask them about their family first, ask them, you know, talk about X or Y, and then ask these questions. And so even for the most introverted, there is a a set of emulation techniques Mm -hmm. that you could use to kind of emulate empathy to, to be able to get answers to some questions. Excellent. For everyone that wants to dive in more about all the resources that you've provided over the years and the work that you're doing out at Stanford, other other teachings you're making available to other universities as well, where is a good place for them to go to to learn about this? Well, I have a website called uh, steveblank.com. There are some interesting categories on the left, uh, uh, interesting links on the top, startup tools. Uh, If you ever want to know how entrepreneurship uh, started in Silicon Valley, there's a tab called The Secret History of Silicon Valley. Um, and you can just subscribe to the, the blog and, and get a weekly or couple of blog posts a month on some topics about innovation and entrepreneurship. Tons of links to my classes, and op- I've open-sourced all that material if, if anybody wants to teach any of this stuff. And and obviously, things that Eric Ries and, and uh, Osterwalder write are equally or maybe even more interesting. And there are hundreds of other blogs now about innovation entrepreneurship and you're just be swimming in a sea of, of uh, swimming in a sea of great information so thank you for the time this has been great it has been great and so steveblank.com i'll make sure that there's a summary of all the key points you shared in the show notes as well as those links steve thank you for being part of the podcast oh it was wonderful to be here thanks you ask great questions Thanks so much for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create those products that customers love. Find the written discussion of all the highlights with Steve and also that action guide to help you put into action what we talked about at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 290. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit 
theeverydayinnovator.com.